Hey, good morning again. Um, I've just got to say, I'm going to be pumping the cough drops this morning. Allergies are kicking my tail. Um, to calm any nerves, I've been fully vaccinated. I'm well past the 14-day mark. It's watery eyes, coffee throat, so I'm not spraying COVID at you guys. I know that can make us feel uneasy, but appreciate your patience with me this morning. Um, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As you're turning there, it'll also be in the screens for us. Uh, we took a two-week break for um, Palm Sunday and Easter, celebrating Holy Week. This week, we're going to jump right back into 1 Corinthians, where we'll be concluding our study on this book um, next month. And so um, we're going to get a running start into chapter 13. I'm going to back up just a little bit. Uh, let's start in chapter 12, verse 27. So please follow along with me. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now, this line is going to be key for us this morning. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And I want to read part of that first verse in the next chapter. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again, as we do every single week, for your word, and that it still speaks to us today, and, and it, it's relevant for us. It communicates to us how to live in light of who you are and what you've done for us. So I pray that this morning you would help us to, to sit under the scriptures this morning, that you would allow us, or you would cause us to be changed by your word and your spirit would convict us of sin and make us to look more like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So you don't need to have had any affiliation with church to be familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, right? Like all you have to do is attend a couple of weddings. It's likely that if you've attended any wedding at all, here in the United States at least, you're going to have heard some portion of chapter 13. It was likely read in your wedding and I believe it was read in mine. It was right in mine? It was not read in mine. Okay. 
I did not, I, I assumed it was. It was probably read in yours. <clears throat> love in general is something our culture loves to talk about. Think for a moment how many movie scripts have been written, how many books have been written, how many songs have been sung on the idea of love. Whether or not it's defined as you and I might define it, it's something that people want to feel, they want to experience, and they want to receive. Now, as we consider this chapter this morning and perhaps redefining love uh, the way that God would define it for us, I wonder if you've ever thought about the placement of chapter 13 in its context here. It feels a little weird and out of place. So think about it just for a few moments. Let's look back a little bit. Paul's been laying into this church. They've been struggling with um, sexual immorality. They've been led astray by physical idolatry. They're defiling the Lord's Supper. Some people are leaving drunk from the Lord's table. Others are leaving hungry. They did not get fed at all. They're abusing the gifts of the Spirit, even arguing that some are more valuable than others. Hey, now let's talk about love, right? It feels a little out of place to me. I highly doubt that when chapter 13 was read at your wedding, if it was read at your wedding, that the pastor also talked about idolatry, sexual immorality, drunkenness, and speaking in tongues. So why does Paul? What's the purpose of this treatise on love in the middle of all this? And that's what we're going to unpack this morning. So if you're familiar at all with the game show Jeopardy, I'm going to follow what they do in that show where they give you the answers first, and then the contestants are supposed to respond with the question that would give you that answer. I believe Paul has given us an answer to something, and I'm going to ask the questions that I think he is trying to answer. So for the first question that I think he's answering is, what is love's impact, or what is love's value? Again, chapter 13 is right in the middle of two chapters that speak more about spiritual gifts than anywhere else in the whole Bible. In other places, you're going to hear the gifts referenced. You might even see a list of the gifts but in chapters 12 and 14, Paul dives deep, gives us the purpose of the gifts, why they've been given to us, and even corrects some false use of them. They were being abused, and he rightly shows them that the gifts are given to the church for the building up of the body of Christ, that we all might grow up together in our love for God, and our knowledge of God, and on our worship of God. And he ends chapter 12 by saying, hey, y'all think the gifts are the end-all be-all, but I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And what is that more excellent way? Love. Now, I want us to consider love's impact in the life of the follower of Jesus by first considering Russell Westbrook. So even if you're not a sports fan, hang in, with, hang in there with me. If you're not familiar with him, he, he played for the Oklahoma City Thunder for 11 years, okay? And if you're even more in like a rabbit hole, he hasn't actually played for the Thunder in two years now, okay? So while he played for the Thunder, and especially in that first year after Kevin Durant left, his value to the team was enormous. Specifically in that first season after Durant left, he won a highly debated MVP award given presumably to the best player in the NBA. The MB it was debatable because the NBA MVP award isn't actually given to the best player. It's most often given to the player with the best statistics in a given year. And it's a little more nuanced than that. Like if you have great stats, like if you're the highest scoring player in the whole NBA, but your team is awful, they're not going to give it to you. So there has to be some combination of really good stats and your team isn't awful. In that year that Westbrook won the MVP, one thing could not be debated. When Westbrook took a break, he, he actually needed to take a break every now and then. When he came off the floor, they were awful. 
They were so bad. Not like kind of bad, like one of the worst teams in the league kind of bad. Like I didn't look back at the statistics, but if you go back, it was like bottom five or 10 in the league in every category when he came off the floor. So the team was built around him and Kevin Durant. You take Durant out of the picture and then Westbrook needs a a break and you're left with a bunch of role players that, that just aren't very good, right? That's what you have. It's true in other things too, not just sports, right? Like imagine taking a kindergarten teacher out of a classroom full of kindergartners. What's going to happen? Yeah, chaos, right? Uh, let's take Elon Musk out of Tesla. Tesla is not what it is. Uh, let's take meat out of a hamburger. No, let's not do that. Let's, let's, let's not. You see what I'm saying here? This is precisely what Paul is arguing the spiritual gifts are without love. The gifts given to the church by the Holy Spirit for their edification are nothing without love. He even says, you and I are nothing without love. I'm about to show you a more excellent way, he writes. More excellent than what? He's just explained how in the body of Christ, no part has greater value than another. Are all teachers? Do all prophesy? Do all possess gifts of healing? No. So what is the more excellent way? As he's building out this argument, he speaks to the whole of a Christian. What they say, what they know, and what they do. So what they say, verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, I think you could also just include winsome speech. If you're winsome and you can captivate a crowd, that would fall under this. What they know, verse 2, If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to move mountains, and then what they do, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned. This is all encompassing of the life of a believer. Now, aren't these things that we celebrate in those that have gone before us in the faith, right? Those who are really great at defending the faith, apologetics by by what they know, those who have led great revivals, who have sacrificed their lives to follow Jesus. They've given their lives for him. Paul's saying, if love is absent, they are nothing. They gain nothing. So if I speak well without love, it's just noise. I'm just a clanging cymbal. If I think well without love, I am nothing. If I give up my life, give up all of my possessions, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Now, I wonder if we should just sit there for just a moment and think, what do you aspire to? Like in your life, like what what are you hoping to achieve? What do you hope is your legacy? What do you hope your kids or your family, your friends, like how do you hope that they remember you? How do you hope that they talk about you, not just long after you're gone, but how about when you leave the room? How do you hope people talk about you? What do you hope to accomplish for God? Paul, I believe, is saying none of these things matter if we don't have love. So love's impact cannot be understated or undersold. So some questions to help us consider or to help us measure where we're at here. First, I want to start with, do you believe that God loves you? And I don't mean like in this large, ambiguous, like, yeah, God loves everyone. God is love, and he, he loves all people. I'm, I'm asking, do you believe God loves you? And then I want to ask, how has he shown you he loves you? Because if you don't first believe that, 
and, and you don't own that, how can you extend this type of love to others? You can't. You must first believe that God loves you. Are you trying to earn his love or impress others by what you do for God? All right, so back to Jeopardy. Question number two. What does love look like? So Paul doesn't offer a transitional sentence here, and I don't think he needs to, because I think these first few verses have sort of a Matthew 7, 22 feel to them. Uh, I think I have the verses here for you. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He knows their next thought is, okay, if I do all of these awesome things, if I exercise the gifts, if I have great knowledge, if I'm very winsome, if I, if I deliver my body to be burned, but I gain nothing without love, okay, they're hanging on the edge of their seats, right, saying, okay, what is love? What is love? And so he just dives in and tells them. This is the more excellent way that Paul is going to unpack for us. Now, first, I want to notice how our specific love, followers of Jesus, is different than what the world experiences. And I think it's important that we know that before we walk through what love is. Commentator Leon Morris explains it for us like this. Whereas the highest concept of love before the New Testament was that of a love for the best one knows, the Christians thought of love as that quality we see on the cross. It is a love for the utterly unworthy, a love that proceeds from a God who is love. It is a love lavished on others without a thought of whether they are worthy or not. It proceeds from the nature of the lover, not from any attractiveness in the beloved. The Christian who has experienced God's love for him while he was yet a sinner has been transformed by this experience. Now he sees people as those for whom Christ died, the objects of God's love, and therefore the objects of the love of God's people. In his measure, he comes to practice the love that seeks nothing for itself, but only the good of the loved one. It is this idea that the apostle unfolds. So as we consider what love looks like, it's imperative we know going then that it has very little to do with the object receiving our love and everything to do with how our nature has been changed because of Jesus, right? The way in which God loves us and the measures he went to in order to show us his love for us says infinitely more about who he is than who we are, and that is how we are to love, okay? So with that understanding, let's walk through uh, what love is, starting in verse four. Love is patient and it's kind. So this word patience is most often uh, used in regards to patience towards people and not events. So think less of like, hey, I'm waiting for that package to arrive at my house. It needs to get here. Or even like a big event like the birth of a child or maybe a wedding to come. It's more in spe specifically how you are exercising patience towards other people in your life. And additionally, it's not simply referring to a tolerance or a patience that, uh, that is passive. There is a long-suffering aspect to it. But also, as one commentator puts it, the word usually suggests not merely willingness to wait a long time or endurance of suffering without giving away, but endurance of injuries without retaliation. One early church father referred to this type of patience as one who is wronged and who has it easily in his power to avenge himself, but will never do it. So put another way, love has every reason to retaliate to the wrong that's been committed to him or her, but chooses restraint and kindness 
instead. Kindness is the action that comes with patience, intentionally paying back a wrong or a hurt with love. In a way, these two descriptions explain much of God's attitude towards us, right? His patience is on display and his mercy towards us, not giving us what we deserve. And his kindness is extended to us through his grace, giving us what we don't deserve. Patience receives wrongs. Kindness responds with active goodness. Love does not envy or boast. We know all about rivalries living in a college town, don't we? Love refuses to allow believers to live with true rivals. Love isn't jealous. Love can't possibly root for the failure or defeat of another. Love does not live in opposition to another. Think of someone you dearly love in your family. When they do well in school or sports or in a hobby, you celebrate with them. You root hard for them. You can't possibly imagine not wanting them to get that college acceptance letter or excelling in their career or growing their family the way they would like. This is precisely the way in which love manifests itself between believers. Jealousy has no place among us. We are not rivals. We are family. There are many among us who've experienced some form of success, the type of success I just mentioned that we root for for those in our family. Love doesn't brag about its accomplishments or its achievements. One commentator compares the two, saying, bragging is the other side of jealousy. Jealousy wants uh, what someone else has. Bragging is trying to make others jealous of what we have. Jealousy puts others down. Bragging builds us up. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love doesn't have it within itself to be filled with pride and look down on others. It causes us to view ourselves appropriately in response, walking in humility. There are warnings throughout the scriptures about what pride can do to us, but I want to look at just a few examples from Proverbs. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Proverbs 11.2, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16.18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. And sadly, when we become prideful, we also become rude. D.A. Carson, in his commentary in this chapter, reminds us that it is said well that you can spot a gentleman not by the way he addresses his king, but by the way he addresses his servants. How true is that statement? You and I have everything to gain by showing respect and honor and kindness to those over us or those who can move us forward in life. Conversely, we have very little, if anything at all, to gain by showing respect, honor, and kindness for those who are below us or beneath us. So how do you treat your your coworkers or those who you are in charge of? How do you treat your kids specifically when they're disobeying and not listening to your authority? More than that, implied with rudeness here is simply acting unbecomingly. It cares little for the feelings of others, it's insensitive, and it jokes inappropriately. Love is much more than being gracious and considerate, but it is never less. Love does not insist on its own way. Love chooses the good of others and humbly initiates action steps that others would thrive. This this made me think of Philippians 2, 
uh, looking to the cross of Jesus. I'll start in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, we're not all asked to literally die on a cross from others. I understand that. But we are all asked to take up our cross daily and crucify our sin and our flesh for the glory of God and for the good of others. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love is not easily provoked by those around him or her. When considering relationships with those closest to you, what is most naturally flowing out of you? What comes out of you most easily? Is it easy to make you angry, or does it take continual provoking for you to become upset? One commentator explains it like this. Telling our wives or husbands that we love them is not convincing if we continually get upset and angry at what they say and do. Telling our children we love them is not convincing if we often yell at them for doing things that irritate us and interfere with our own plans. It does no good to protest, yeah, I lose my temper a lot, but it's all over in just a few moments. Well, so is a nuclear bomb. A great deal of damage can be done in a very short time. Lovelessness is the cause of temper, and love is the only cure. I wonder if our irritability is the key trait that keeps us from allowing others close to us. Now consider who, who makes you most irritable, right? It's those closest to us, right? So think spouse, kids, close friends. Who are you in close relationship with outside of your immediately family that makes you so irritable and that you're still working through that irritability? Like, isn't it so much easier to just say, wow, they just get on my nerves. They are the worst. I'm out. Like, I don't even want to spend time with them. I don't want to be friends with them and just sever the relationship. It's just easy to do that, right? So because we get irritable with someone else, we're going to say, well, I, I'm just not going to spend time with them. And so we limit our close circle of friends. I just wonder if that is the key trait that prevents us from allowing others close to us. When if we did some soul searching, we might realize that the problem is actually us, right? The problem is actually us most of the time. We'll get into this in a few more moments here, but exploring the heart of God is extremely important for us to do here. We'll consider what most naturally comes from his heart. Like, is he quick to become angry and frustrated with you? Is he, is he keeping track of all of your wrongs? How easy for him is it to extend grace and mercy to you? Now, I'm showing my cards a bit. We're going to come back to that. It's going to be very important for us as we end. Verse 6. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Simply put, what does love celebrate? How does it feel when you know someone is secretly or privately waiting for you to trip up? Or is celebrating what you do wrong and, and, and points those things out to you? It's really hard, isn't it? Love doesn't rejoice in these things. Instead, it's eager to search out and celebrate that which is true and right and good in another. Love isn't actively looking for someone in your sphere to cancel. Love does not do that. It looks for the things that are good, right, and true, and it shouts them from the rooftops. 
A few weeks ago, Jeremy encouraged us as a church, as we gathered together in missional communities, to encourage one another. And he reminded us that, hey, nobody's in danger from being encouraged too much. You guys remember that? Like, nobody is, is going to go off the deep end because they receive too many compliments, right? So we gathered together as a missional community, and we did just that. And we weren't, like, we weren't trying to lie to one another, you know, like tell someone something that we like about them when it's not really true, you know. We actually considered, man, what, what does God value in this person? How are they gifted? Let's celebrate those things. And we spoke those things like crazy, like we actually said those things out loud. Why is this so rare for us, right? So we did that. And it was one of the most life-giving things I think that I've done in maybe the past year. Not just for someone to speak it into me, but for here it's spoken over others to say these things and speak encouraging things to one another and think on what does God value in them and then ask, do I value that in them? Am I valuing that in another? That is what love does. Love looks for those things and speaks those things. Love bears all things, verse seven, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Some translations are going to use always here. So love always bears, always believes, always hopes, always endures. And think less like someone who's a doormat and just gets run over all the time by someone who abuses them. And think more of like someone who is filled with hope. That, that love is going to always give someone the benefit of a doubt. Love is always going to seek to bear someone else's burdens. Love is always going to hope for the best. Love is always going to believe the best about you unless you give them a reason not to. So if I hear gossip or slander about you, my first inclination is not to believe it, it's to, to say, I'm gonna give this person the benefit of the doubt. I'll go talk to them, yes, but I'm gonna believe the best about them until they give me a reason not to. Now, when we consider this whole list, this is a, this is a high bar, right? And I fear it could do one of two things for us. Like, I feel like it could build in us guilt and shame to say, man, I'm, I'm like, doing well at less than half of those things. I'm really bad at all of those things, maybe. And you feel guilt and shame that you're not living in the way that God would have you live. Or on the other side, maybe you would say, man, I'm doing my best to love this person, but they're not reciprocating these feelings for me. And so guilt, or uh, I'm sorry, resentfulness or bitterness can, can build up in you. You could become angry towards that person. And I wanna fight against both of those things by looking to the cross, and remembering what Jesus did for us. It's good for my own heart, too, to remember that Jesus displayed and exemplified love for us, showing us how to love others. But more than that, he embodied love. He was love. He is love. He bore your sins and mine, taking them to the cross and buried them in the grave with them. When you follow Jesus, your life is now engulfed in his, and you are full of the same love that he displayed for us on the cross. You know, next week we're gonna celebrate baptism, like I mentioned before. And symbolically, when we baptize someone, they're going into the grave and they're coming out the waters a new person. The sin, the sin that they carry, as we celebrated last week, right? The sin is going into the grave and it's staying there. And so when they come out, they're resurrected to new life, in Jesus. Individuals are. Collectively, we are as a church, but individuals are uniting themselves with Jesus. That is your story, and that's mine if you follow him. So remember that as we seek to love others. Remember what Christ has done for you, and we operate out of that, out of his great love for us. 
Now I've got some questions to consider for us to help measure where we are in this regard. Do you see people as those for whom Christ died and the objects of God's love? How do you treat those that could be considered as below or beneath you? And is that different than the way you treat those above you? Are you actively considering the ways you can reflect the love of God to others? All right, our final Jeopardy question for this morning, answering from verses 8 through 13, is this. Why is love worth all the effort? For a couple reasons. First, it never ends. This is the most obvious from our text. Love never ends. We only know in part. We only see in part. We exercise spiritual gifts in part. And when Christ comes back, returning to inaugurate the fullness of his kingdom and usher us into his presence for all eternity, we'll have no more need to acquire knowledge. We'll have no more need to prophesy. We'll have no more need to exercise spiritual gifts. Only one thing is going to remain, love. You won't, think about not needing to learn something ever again. That's especially for college students. Like, does that blow your mind? Like, There's coming a day for those who are in Jesus, you'll never need to learn something new. But love will always be in investing. It's wise to invest in products and companies that we estimate will retain their value the longest, right? And that's what Paul's saying. Don't go all in on things that won't last forever. Love is going to last forever. Now, he's not saying, hey, don't pursue the spiritual gifts at all. In fact, in 14.1, he's going to say, desire the spiritual gifts. He's going to say that over and over. But don't pursue them without love. Love lasts forever. To expound on this idea a bit further, I believe that love never ends because it's hardwired into the heart of God. Listen to how Dane Ortland builds out this idea for us in Gentle and Lowly. Merciful and gracious. These are the first words out of God's own mouth after proclaiming his name to Moses in Exodus 34 when he shows him his glory. The first words. The only two words that Jesus uses to describe his heart are gentle and lowly. And the first two words God uses to describe who he is are merciful and gracious. Now, God does not reveal his glory as the Lord, the Lord, exacting and precise, or the Lord, the Lord, tolerant and overlooking, or the Lord, the Lord, disappointed and frustrated. His highest priority, his deepest delight, and his first reaction, his heart, is merciful and gracious. Not once are we told that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. His anger requires provocation. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. Now, we tend to think the opposite, don't we? That his divine anger is pent up, it's spring-loaded, it's coming for us, and his divine mercy is slow to build. It's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. God needs no provoking to love, only to anger. We, on the other hand, need no provoking to anger, only to love. How remarkable is this? That this is true of our God. And it's so hard to believe because we are so unlike this, aren't we? But this is true. God is easily provoked to love. Like he's filling up with love and mercy. It's ready to flow out of him. Questions to consider to help us measure where we are in this regard. Do you love others in a way that shows that you believe love will never end? Are you easily provoked to anger, frustration, and irritation? Or are you easily provoked to love, kindness, and patience? When pricked, someone bumps into you, 
What oozes out of you? What comes out of you so naturally? Now, if you're not engaged on social media, you likely missed that this past week, our beloved coach of the Sooners, Lincoln Riley, got obliterated on Twitter for something he posted. I've got a picture here for you. He smoked a brisket and posted it on Easter Sunday and said something, you know, very jovial, like, hey, happy Easter, everyone, you know, love you guys. And then he posted this picture. Now, if you're not a barbecue connoisseur, you're not into smoking meats, this picture makes it look as if this brisket is completely overcooked. It, it looks like he just dried it out and it looks awful. Now, it, that may not be reality, okay? I'm not going to analyze this picture with you guys. But on social media, it looked like it was dry. And guys, he got destroyed. Should I say he got smoked? He got <laughs> roasted. Yeah. Um, I'm going to read for you some of the responses to this picture. We can, let's leave this picture up as I read these out, okay? This is the second Lincoln assassination. <laughs> Another one. Um, this jerky looks delicious. Um, this guy is absolutely addicted to destroying longhorns. <laughs> Beef, brisket, yeah, get it, okay. Uh, this is probably from someone in Texas. Lincoln takes a rare loss to Texas. Texas, well-known for their brisket. Uh, th man, this guy takes a shot at Billy Sims. He says, not even Billy Sims would serve this. I've never actually had Billy Sims barbecue, so I don't know. Uh, getting Arby's catered was an interesting call. Uh, I'll, give I'll give you a few more here. Finally found something Lincoln can burn worse than a defense. The, and these last two are, are my favorite. <laughs> if you drop your phone in water, you could put it in a bag with this brisket to dry it out. <laughs> and, and this is my last one. This is a little insider language for those of you who are into college sports. This says, moisture has entered the transport portal. So it gained quite a bit of traction on social media. Some national sports platforms picked it up, and yeah, he got, he got destroyed. Um, if you go to type in Lincoln Riley now, like the second or third line is Lincoln Riley brisket. So this has become a thing, guys. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm worried it's going to affect recruiting. Um, it's not. It's not. Um, hey, you guys know what Lincoln Riley's not paid 7 to $8 million a year to do? Smoke brisket. Like, Lincoln, if you want to sit in the fancy part of town and cook the worst brisket imaginable, and you want to eat it, and you want to post it so all of us peons can see, you do that. that you do whatever you want. Lincoln Riley is paid to field a great football team, to destroy other people in the Big 12, and to compete for national championships. And guys, he's doing it, right? Like, he's doing a great job. Who cares if his brisket looks awful? I would not eat that. You should not eat that either. You want to know what you and I are primarily not to be known for as followers of Jesus? What spiritual gifts we have, what we do for a living, what school our kids go to, our political party, how much knowledge we can acquire. These things are not necessarily bad things. We can pursue them. But if they are primarily what we're known for, we've missed it. In the same way that Lincoln Riley is being paid a boatload of money to be an offensive genius and win football games, you and I as followers of Jesus ought to be known for our love. If you want to think of it this way, we are being paid in something of far greater value, eternal life with God 
We are to be experts in extending grace and mercy to others, specifically to other followers of Jesus, for our forgiveness to them, for our patience with them, and for our kindness to them. Now, here's the question. Are we? Are you? Is that what you're known for? And you, all right, you, can pull the, you can pull the brisket down. Again, this is a high bar, but this is the goal. So this morning, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, remembering again what we celebrated last week, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, in order that we as his enemies will be brought near to God through his sacrifice for us. Now we're no longer his enemies, but we're now considered friends of God, sons and daughters of the king, rightful co-heirs of the kingdom, which is coming. This, friends, is the more excellent way that you and I as followers of Jesus would have a PhD in love, love for God, love for each other, and love for our neighbor, love for the lost. If we excel in nothing else but love, that is okay. That is successful. If we excel in nothing else but love, we win. We fulfill the law of God, and we accomplish his great commandment for us. So may we today, this week, and as long as we live, pursue love. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have shown us how to love. God, that you came to earth embodying flesh of man, and you showed us how to love. You told us how to love, and then you displayed it for us on a cross. And so we, we admit and we confess that this is really hard. This is hard for us to do. Even on our best days, we fall short. And so help us always to look to Jesus. Help us to look to the cross and remember that even when we fall short, we're found in him. But help us not to be distracted in other things, whether that's our career or the spiritual gifts that, that are good things. Even striving in ministry is a good thing. But it all means nothing, Paul says, if we have not love. So God, help us not to be distracted this morning. Help us to recalibrate our hearts and our lives around this idea of love. We can't do this without you, so please give us your spirit to live this out. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.